Thank you, Marilyn. Cultural observers have noted that in the current election cycle, which is preciously drawing to a close, uh, that most Clinton supporters don't know anyone who is voting for Trump, and most Trump supporters don't know anyone who is voting for Clinton. So stratified and divided has become our culture. There was a time in American history when our culture was far more divided than it is uh, today. 150 years ago, this city was in the midst of civil war as our nation was in the midst of civil war. 600,000 some lives lost, lives destroyed, livelihoods destroyed. Families had one son fighting for the Confederacy and one son fighting for the Union. Imagine your own children facing off on a field of battle, guns loaded, seeking one another's death. And St. Louis, in particular, was a border city in a border state. You may know Missouri was a southern state, uh, but not in the Confederacy. It remained in the Union. It was under Union occupation. And in this southern slave state of Missouri, uh, St. Louis was the outlier. St. Louis was one of just two municipalities in, in the state of Missouri that voted for Abraham Lincoln in the 1860 election. The other was Herman, Missouri, because they were all Germans. Uh, But so was St. Louis by 1860. Among the cultural elite, among the privileged classes in the Central West End, Midtown, Downtown, what we today call Central West End, among those who were educated and sophisticated, they were more uh, prone to ally their hearts, at least emotionally, with the South, as many of those families had moved to Missouri from Virginia and from North Carolina. And in particular, at Second Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri, there was a lot of division because the overwhelming majority of the members were Northerners, and they were allied with the Union during the war that was then drawing to a close. And among those Northerners, we, it was a Northern Presbyterian Church. There were calls, loud calls, even at the national level, that, that everyone, at least all leaders in the Presbyterian Church, must be be made to say a a vow of allegiance to President Abraham Lincoln. And for the pastor at Second Presbyterian Church, that didn't sit right. What about the Canadian in his pew? Does he have to make a vow of allegiance to President Lincoln? It was a time of civil strife. Do we add a sixth vow to the membership vows of the church that you have to have a, a particular political perspective, a particular side in a civil conflict? Though he himself was a northerner, his family had freed their slaves when they had fled Kentucky a generation earlier. Nevertheless, to turn your back, to expel someone from the church because they were of a different political or sectional sympathy, it seemed wrong. And so he stepped down as pastor of Second Presbyterian Church. And the week that he stepped down, his former session, the elders of Second Pres came to his house and begged him, instead of leaving, to plant a church. 
because he had a vision. He had a vision of a church in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, where all are in Christ, and the gospel has the power to do what American culture and 600,000 deaths could not do to actually unite people who were vastly different, had different political viewpoints, different racial backgrounds, different sectional sympathies, people who would argue politics night and day, the vision of bringing them together in Jesus. And so he began what today is known as Memorial Presbyterian Church in July of 1864 during the Civil War in a divided city, in a divided state, in a divided nation. I want to share with you, some of you have heard this before, some of the leaders. We have a first picture here, a painting. This is Albert Gallatin Edwards, A.G. Edwards. He was one of our founding uh, elders. He was the son of the governor, former governor of, of Illinois, Ninian Edwards. He was a Republican. He was at that time uh, undersecretary of the United States Treasury in the Lincoln administration. He was a brig- brigadier general in the Union Army. If you look at the minutes down in the basement, he was absent for the first session meeting because he was off fighting on the Union side of the war. Uh, he served as undersecretary of the Treasury under four presidents. Uh, uh, interestingly, in his family home, uh, 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 Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd were wed in his family home. Uh, He had close ties to the Union. Uh, After uh, stepping out of politics, he he founded a brokerage called A.G. Edwards, which today is Wells Fargo Advisors. That was one of our elders. I want to show you another one of our elders. This is Edward Burdell Sr. Edward Burdell Sr. in March of 1863 was arrested by order of the Department Provost Marshal General. He was committed to military prison for having corresponded with officers of the rebel army communicating valuable intelligence. By 1864, he was under house arrest. He had a large mansion on the south side of Lafayette Square, Lafayette Park, south of downtown. He was the owner of the Missouri Gas Works. His son was fighting for the Confederate Army. That year, his son died on the field of battle in Fredericksburg. He also was an elder serving on the same session as A.G. Edwards. Show you another leader, not an elder, but one of the most significant leaders. She's somewhere in here. We're not sure which one she is, but probably one of the really elderly ones in the middle. Her name is Mary Jane Townsend. She was born a slave in 1838. She escaped St. Louis as most, uh, I think 75 to 80 percent of slaves in Missouri escaped slavery during the Civil War. Most of them made their way to St. Louis, which already had a reputation for union sympathies, uh, for being uh, more enlightened and more progressive and for being a key stage in the Underground Railroad even prior to that. Mary Jane Townsend was a domestic servant. She was a cook, and she led the largest ministry that this church had in its early years. It was a ministry uh, called the Leonard Avenue Sunday School. It was a ministry providing, literally schooling, not 9 a.m. Sunday school, you know, pictures of Jesus, but four in the afternoon Sunday school where black children of escaped slaves were taught to read. And they were taught to write, 
and they were taught their arithmetic, the three R's, and they were taught about Jesus. And that ministry ended up becoming one-third of Memorial Presbyterian Church within a couple decades. It then became the Leonard Avenue Mission and eventually Leonard Avenue Church, now Berea Presbyterian Church. It was... uh, leaders of that church that Mary Jane Townsend planted. She wasn't the preacher. She wasn't doing the sacraments. She was the gatherer. She was the missionary. She was the one taking leadership. She was put in this position by the elders of the church. She was one of the most respected women in the church. New York Observer article from 1910 describes how she had taken her wages every day into her advanced years as a cook, and instead of spending them on herself, those meager wages, year after year, week after week, she had saved up $3,700 to buy a manse so that this new black church plant, Berea Presbyterian Church, could attract the best Princeton-trained pastors $3,700 in that day, $5,000 could build a Carnegie library. She didn't want this church to have any disadvantages, even though that church plant was African American. Uh, It was members of that church and memorial, women of color, leaders of color, who founded uh, the Phyllis Wheatley branch of the YWCA to provide housing because a young African-American woman coming to St. Louis out of a sharecropper situation or out of slavery would have very few options. She would be very uh, easily pressured into prostitution or some other criminal activity. Uh, She would be taken advantage of and used. She would have no skills. And these women created this organization that provided safe housing for young women of color, that provided training and education and job skills and helped them get good jobs in good situations to actually begin to build a middle class out of people who a generation earlier had been enslaved. And when you think that Memorial had a common cup, it's that cup down there, there were eight of them, it still says 16th Street Church because that's where it met. And you imagine a member of the Lincoln administration and a Union Brigadier General taking the cup and handing it to a man who was a Confederate sympathizer whose boy had been killed by Union troops and who was under house arrest as he then takes that cup and hands it to an African-American woman, an escaped slave. Friends, that is a vision of diversity. And that is what God is calling you to be in the coming week as this nation goes through a time of great division in which no matter what happens, you will have brothers and sisters in Jesus who will be rejoicing and others who are grieving. Is the power of the gospel strong enough to build what was built 150 years ago? We're going to look at another time of conflict, another situation, this time in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago as the church was under persecution and there is a vision of what the church is before Jesus And we're going to look and we're going to ask from Revelation 7, where is their power? Where is diversity in the purpose of God? What does it cost us to attain it? And how is that 
possible. This is Revelation chapter 7. It's the word of God. We're going to begin in verse 9 and go through verse 17. Follow along with me as I read the vision, the apocalypse, the unveiling that was given to the apostle John as he was brought up to heaven and shown a vision from God's perspective. He says, after this, I looked And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language. They were all different, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they be hungry. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. What do we see here? We see that diversity is at the very center of God's saving purpose. This is why the vision emphasizes this multitude that's from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. There are Hillary supporters. There are Trump supporters. There are Evan, the guy who's Mormon supporters. There's... There's Johnson supporters. There's all sorts of people. They're different languages. It's like when I go home for Christmas and I fly into Reagan National Airport and my parents pick me up and we go to to Tyson's Corner. Not the the location, but the mall. Because that's all it is. It's a mall with a whole bunch of buildings around it and lots of parking. Number one grossing mall in America at one point. Uh, But, you know, I go in there at Christmas and it's, it's, it's that excitement of being in a global city because I look around and, and I hear Russian, and I hear Spanish, and I hear weird African clicking language that I don't, don't recognize, but I know it's not from around those parts. I, and I, I see people, they're, they're black people, and brown people, and red people, and white people, all sorts of different people. And, and I look around, and I realize that as a white male, I'm maybe 15% of the people present, because they're Middle Easterners, and they're, they're, they're East Asians, and, and South Asians, and, and Africans. I mean, African Africans, not African Americans. And they're African Americans, and they're Latinos, and Latinas of all different versions, Puerto Rican and Mexican and, and, and you know, everything. And, and then I, when I figure out that white males are about 15% of the people there, then I start listening to the white males, and they're all speaking Russian. And so, 
with really nice jewelry and watches. Uh, you know, and they're there for a common purpose to shop. And I imagine what it would be like walking into a church and hearing all these languages and seeing all these people and everybody's different. And they're from all over the world. And you've got Northerners and Southerners, Latinos and American Indians and you know, rich people and poor people and, and Trump voters and Hillary voters. And, and all of them feel at home. They're not just there to shop. They're there because they're family. They, they welcome each other. They're embracing one another, hugging each other. They're following up. Uh, they're, they're looking to each other for wisdom and guidance and support. They're speaking in a single voice because they're family. And, and somebody comes up and asks, hey, what do, what do all these people have in common? I don't see this anywhere else in St. Louis. Nobody looks as weird and diverse as you all. You're like the island of misfit toys. There's one of everything. He says, well, Jesus did this. Jesus washed us. He made us family. You see, he rescued us to be from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language and be together speaking in one voice. They're not just tolerating each other. That's what the world preaches. They're loving each other. They're family. Their stories are so woven together that they're speaking, it says, in one voice in verse 10. I have no interest in becoming a tolerant church. That just means we bear with each other grudgingly. We, we inhabit the same space, but not the same emotional space. To be the church, in all its diversity, means we're actively loving one another. You know, love is far more beautiful and far more costly and requires a far bigger investment than tolerance. And, and in Roman culture... Under Roman law, you could be executed for the, for the crime of assembly. You know, it's one of those things, you know, you know one of those, those rights that we have as Americans, the freedom of assembly. It's the one that nobody ever thinks about because we just assume it. But in the ancient world, you did not have the right to gather with 15 people that you weren't related to. Because under Roman law, it was expected that if you did that, probably what would happen is eventually somebody would start grumbling about the government, and then they'd have a rebellion to put down, and so you couldn't do it. And they were risking their lives to be with each other in worship because they were family, and you don't turn your back on your family. And as they speak in one voice in verse 10, a common song, a common concern, a common story, it's what the Bible calls us to, to be this incredibly diverse family, those people that you're not trying to impress. You don't need to. They see what you look like when you wake up in the morning. You know, and this is a family of people who are natural-born enemies. They're of different nations. They're of different tribes. Tribes fight each other. They're of different political parties. And it's as Isaiah spoke centuries earlier, what Marilyn read, a lion and a lamb, natural-born enemies, and they're snuggling together. They're lying together in unity. Ephesians 2, Paul says that the reason Jesus came was to tear down the dividing wall of hostility that separated the peoples and to bring them together in Jesus so that the two become one from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Diversity is at the very center of God's saving purpose. And yet diversity is also costly. You know, you picture a multitude. 
nation, tribe, people, language, they're all different. You got one woman in hijab, one guy next to her wearing a loincloth with tribal markings. person in front of them is speaking Turkish, and behind them, somebody's speaking Swahili in the next row over. They're all speaking Mongolian. You know, you deconstruct what this looks like in a church of 300, and you understand one of the costs of diversity. You know, imagine you're here, and you have three young children, and you look around, and in front of you, it's all single people. And behind you, empty nesters. And to your right, they've got kids, but their kids are twice the age of yours. And to the left, it's a single mom who's so stressed out, she doesn't really have time to talk. And you understand some of the cost of diversity when you're the only one with tribal markings. Uh, You know, if you get 300 people and you have single people and you have married people and young people and old people and rich people and poor people and highly educated people and less educated people and and Republicans and Democrats and independents and and ultimately you, you categorize all of that and you don't have very many of any one thing. And that's the cost of diversity. You see, nature loves a monoculture. And the way Americans generally do church is there are churches where everybody is 32 years old with an 8-year-old. Or everyone is Latino. Or everyone is rich, white, gray-haired Republican. Um, It exists, promise, trust me. I talked to a pastor from, from Florida recently, and he was describing how they have to work really, really hard to develop young leaders because in Florida, he says, a church will gray out within five years. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. Nature loves a monoculture. And those, you know, trendy hip churches that's all 20-year-olds who aren't married yet become middle-aged churches where it's all about family ministries. And then they become geriatric churches, and then they die, and then they have a property that has to be liquidated because they can't afford to take care of it anymore. And the vision of God is that that is not what he has in, in, in store. He wants... Every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people, together worshiping the Lamb in one voice with a thousand different accents. But the cost is that we have to be willing to be the only one. It's like Persis in, in Romans 16. Paul greets her. She was probably the only Iranian woman in the Roman church in the first century. Uh, and it means not just being the only one of you, whatever you are, but it also means giving up your cultural position. Think back to the, 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 the early church in the book of Acts, back in, in Acts chapter 6, when, when the deacons were first founded. The church at that point was Palestinian Jewish Christian. Everybody was from Palestine. Everybody was Jewish. Everybody had met Jesus. And except then there were these, as it grew, there were these Hellenistic Christians who were from Greek background. They might be Jewish. They might not be, Gent- they might be Gentiles. But they were, culturally, they were Greek. And they noticed, hey, you know, they came up, they complained. They said, hey, our widows aren't getting taken care of. All of the Palestinian Jewish Christian widows are well cared for, but the church is not taking care of the Greek widows uh, who are Christian. You see, they were the minority people group. They were not the dominant culture in the church. They were from a different background. They were the weird ones. And so what did the apostles do? They had the people choose leaders. And what you notice is almost all, if not all, of the names of the first deacons are Greek names. In other words, they didn't just say, we have a race problem, so let's set up a ministry for those people. They said, we have a race, ethnicity, diversity problem, so let's hand over the keys and let them show us how it's done. 
they handed over all the power to the minority group in order to better reflect the diversity. There's a cost. You've got to give up a part of your culture. That means even recognizing cultural biases that we have. And, and, and that's difficult because, um, I don't know about you, but I was actually raised white and uh, been white all my life. And one thing about white people in America is that we think we're the only people who don't have an ethnicity. Um, for those of you who aren't in that room, you can just listen in and smile. Uh, you know, we think, you, you know, we think we're, we're vanilla. We don't have a flavor. You know, our food's not ethnic food. Uh, you know, I speak in what's considered more or less a Midwestern American accent, which means that I don't have an accent. Everyone else has an accent. My accent is normative. Mine is the way English ought to be uh, spoken. Uh, um, the queen would disagree. But uh, <laughs> you say, Greg, I have no idea what you're talking about when you're talking about cultural biases and, and what would it look like for a church to say, you know, how are we doing church not biblically but whitely? How are we taking cultural assumptions of white middle-class American culture and letting them drive the ship? Maybe we're not. Maybe we are. How are we doing that? Uh, you know, you get a bunch of white people together in America, and, and if you can get them to talk about race, they're going to feel really uncomfortable. And then you get them talking about it and talking about diversity and and, you know, how do white people talk about it? Well, it's going to be very cognitive, very restrained. Um, you know, how do black people talk about race? Emotionally. It's personal. That's a cultural bias that, as a white American, I have to realize that I have, is that white people feel like emotion ought not to be seen. You know, how many of you in your workplace, how many of your workplaces actually encourage the expression of emotion and reward that? How many of you have work cultures that are built and created by white people to further advance the careers of white people? Um, you see, but, but you don't know your own culture. It's, it's the problem. You say, no, Greg, you don't understand. I'm just a white guy. I'm just, I'm just vanilla. If there's two things you get from the message today, one is Jesus died for you, and the other one is this, vanilla is a flavoring. Vanilla is not neutral. Ask my cats. They smelled like vanilla for a week, and they hated it. Uh, you know, like, vanilla is not neutral. Vanilla is not objective. Vanilla is not normative. And the way white people tend to do things by default uh, assuming that that's just the way it's done, that that's normative, that assumption is at the heart of a whole lot of pain and a lot of suffering, and it's a whole lot of why Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. I mean, your food, if you're white, is ethnic food. You say, Greg, white food is not ethnic food. What is white food anyway? Come on, Greg. Okay, I'm thinking one word, three syllables, starts with a C, rhymes with whack-a-mole, it involves going to Schnooks and getting something in a red and white can that says cream of mushroom soup. And nobody actually eats cream of mushroom soup. Historically, historians will tell you that its only purpose is as an ingredient in white ethnic American cuisine, specifically the casserole. You know, that's ethnic food. Other people, you go to Vietnam, you go in the, you know, the historic district of, of Hanoi, you find a nice little restaurant, you say, what kind of casseroles do you have? You know, they don't have one. 
you know, what are our casseroles as a church? You know, it's like, it's like being right-handed. You know, a, a culture builds an entire culture, an entire civilization in order to advance the uh, success, privilege, prosperity, and comfort of right-handed people. And they're not doing it on purpose. They're just doing it because that's their culture and we're blind to our cultural biases. But what if you're left-handed? You go up to the microwave. You've seen this before. You go up to the microwave and you reach across and you open the door. You got the duck. Or those desks where you're writing over here. It's like, you know, there are cultural biases as a culture, as a, even as a church, just as a church. What are our right-handed writing desks? What are our microwave doors that open backward for so many people? They're cultural assumptions, and, and identifying those and often sacrificing those are part of the price of diversity. Because you see in Revelation, God front loads diversity. Every, every tongue, tribe, race, that's God's agenda. Are there ways in which we're getting in front of God's agenda? That's the question, because God shows us his priority. He doesn't give us answers about what it will cost for us, but that priority says, we've got to ask the question, Greg, what are the six things you're going to do with this? I have no idea. I'm just learning to ask the question. But as a church, That's where we're going. God is saying in Revelation, this is where Jesus is taking his church. And if you get on board with what he's doing, that's where we're going. And those are the questions we're going to be asking. What are some white cultural assumptions just for for humor? Uh, The assumption that the ideal family, the ideal household has a mom and dad and children and does not have grandma or grandpa living with them. Uh, the assumption that a well-raised child is quiet and speaks only when spoken to, that the ideal individual is self-sufficient, that people should eat cheese and crackers. There's a reason they call us crackers. Uh, The assumption that a good leader, a good leader is somebody who takes charge and gets things done. You know, that's not a biblical value. The Bible says a good leader is one who's nailed to a cross for his enemies. But it's a cultural assumption of white culture. It's the way we do leadership by default, unless we're intentionally being biblical and gospel-centered. Because, see, the thing is not to have a diversity program. The idea is to be intentional and thoughtful and more shaped by the gospel and less by the culture in which we were raised. White culture assumes that individuals should be in control of their environment, that competition is better than collaborative decision-making, that the proper focus of attention is always the individual and not the group. The ideal person is independent and autonomous. Conflict should always be avoided. Emotion should always be avoided or hidden. You should keep your voice down when you're inside, and when you're outside, you should use your inside voice as well. You should work hard, and you should gain measurable results. You should be polite as white culture defines politeness. You should continually keep an eye on the clock and always be punctual. Just think, just think of all the Bible verses about punctuality. There aren't any. It's a cultural value. Now, there are values about biblical value of faithfulness, so don't throw that out, but, but you know, always do things in the most efficient manner. Always assume you can fix a problem. Always assume that as a white person, it's your job to fix a problem when you see it. When someone shows up at your door, you ask them what they want. You don't just invite them in. You ask them what they want because in white culture, relationships are fundamentally transactional and you assume that there's something they need for you to fix or to provide. Otherwise, what's the point of them? 
Am I saying all of this is bad? No. I'm just saying there are uncritically evaluated cultural assumptions that are not objective biblical teachings, and the degree to which we build a church around those assumptions of whiteness and white culture are the degrees to which we set ourselves up to become a monoculture. And are we willing to pay the price when we can answer the question? Are we willing to pay the price for diversity? You know, because it's one thing to say, yes, Greg, that sounds very sophisticated and very biblical and very intelligent and even bordering on progressive. I'm proud of you, Greg. Good job. But if the answer to that question means that we need to be more emotional and expressive in worship, then I'm out of here. That's your culture getting in the way. You've got to give that up. You've got to nail it to the cross. If we're going to be a people from every tongue and tribe and nation with Jesus at the center, that means we've got to be willing Wherever God leads us, whatever that looks like, whatever the cost, are you willing to pay the price? <laughs> that was not white culture speaking. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That was Jesus. Um, you know, the story is told of uh, 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 David Augsburger, dissident discipleship, talks about how long ago in a distant land, this king dreamt of a new kingdom, a new day, a new society in which there was incredible diversity, in which everybody's diversity was, was poured into a common culture so that we could speak in a common voice. And he invited all the nobles and leading families from the land to come and to take their most precious wine, their best vintage from their finest fields, and to bring it, and we would together pour it into a common vat and blend together all the rich bouquet and aromas of all of the best of all the diverse peoples. And one noble was disgusted by that thought. How can I mix my exquisite wine with that of my neighbors? I would sacrifice our unique culture of our grape, our variety, the special climate, the sweetness of the harvest, the magic of the bouquet. I would violate my art and my culture as a winemaker. It's impossible. I will not give up my, my distinct variety and lose myself in a common cup. And so he corked a bottle of tap water. He slapped his finest label on it, and he presented it to the king. And as all of the nobles and all the leading families poured their wine into the vat, they then reached in with their cups and, 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 and clinked them together and toasted this new vision of diverse society. And as, as they got the cups to their mouth, everyone there knew what had happened. Because what was in their mouth, what was in the cup, was tap water. No one had been willing to pay the price for diversity and for a diverse community. Diversity is a sinner, but it's costly. So how is it possible? Look where they looked. They were not looking at each other. They were not looking at themselves. They were not looking at their tongue and tribe and nation and culture. They were looking at Jesus Jesus, the Lamb of God who had sacrificed his shed blood for them and had said, you are, by choosing to die for you, he was saying, you are so precious, so valuable, so significant. Your significance will never again be found in your culture or your race or your background or your ethnicity. You will be Christians. You are my people. They have washed their robes, it says. And so the Lord, therefore, to them is now 
our God, they say, meaning it's possessive. We belong to God, but God now belongs to us as his family. It's covenantal. It's like a husband and a wife where they mutually own one another. It says that this Lord will shelter you with his presence. It says in verse 17 that he is your shepherd, and he's going to guide you, and he's going to lead you. He's going to guard you. He's going to walk with you. And when you're crying over the loss of things that were precious to you once, he is going to wipe every tear from your eyes because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. On February 16th of 1989, the lives of George and Vera Bajinsky of Ontario, Canada, were changed forever. It was a very normal Thursday morning. About 9.15 in the morning, their phone rang. There had been an accident involving their son, Ben. So they got in their car, and as they approached the intersection of Adelaide and Simcoe Streets near the high school, they could see flashing lights, police cars, and ambulance. Vera noticed a photographer, and she followed the direction of his camera lens to the largest pool of blood that she had ever seen. And all she could say was, George, Ben went home, home to be with Jesus. Her first reaction was to jump out of the car, to somehow collect the blood and put it back into her son. She says, that blood for me at that moment became the most precious thing in the world because it was life. It was life-giving blood, and it belonged inside my son, my only son, the son I love. The road was dirty, and the blood just didn't belong there. And George noticed that cars were driving right through the intersection, right through the blood. And his heart was smitten. He wanted to cover over the blood with his coat and cry, You will not drive over the blood of my son. Then Vera understood for the first time in her life one of God's greatest and most beautiful truths. Why blood? Why blood? Because it was the strongest language God could have used. It was the most precious thing he could possibly give, the highest price he could pay. Through God's amazing love, we were redeemed, redeemed with the blood of Jesus. Friends, that's the power. To wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way you're going to get a confederate under house arrest, a union general, and a black woman together in the same leadership team, in the same church, drinking from the same cup, loving one another as family. Let that be vision as you create this new society that is Memorial Church. Let that be your vision of a God who died for his enemies so that you, in all your diversity, could give up everything to be his family together. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would do this, even during this election cycle, even in the next couple weeks, the next couple days, Lord, that you would do something in your church that our culture has not been able to do. We have cried out for diversity for generations in this culture, and we have not been able to do it because people still resent each other, and they don't have friends who are of a different political viewpoint. Lord, let this church be the exception the beginning of a new humanity. 
that people of every tongue and tribe and language and background washed by the blood of the Lamb. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, because you, Lord Jesus, alone can do this because you are the Savior, you are the Shepherd, you are the Son of God, you are the one who purchased us for God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.